I'm leaving Beijing, Jeremiah Jenny wrote in the Beijinger last year. How many times have I read those words? Perhaps casually dropped over a couple pints at the Great Leap number 12, or maybe I read them in a blog post. It's one of those rewards for holding out here. Stay five years and you level up with a terminal case of black lung, a liver which only responds to pure formaldehyde, and the right to pen a valedictory essay on your way out the door. Stay here long enough and they might even do a podcast about you. Well, Jeremiah, you have stayed long enough. In this episode, we'll be discussing recent changes to Beijing. Jeremiah Jenny is a writer for Radii China and history teacher based in Beijing since 2002. He's taught late imperial and modern Chinese history at the IES Abroad Program for over 10 years and has written extensively about China and Asia. He's also the proprietor of Beijing by Foot, leading walks and educational programs exploring the famous sites and hidden byways of Beijing. Jeremiah, welcome to China Econ Talk. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you for having me. So how have these groups uh, and their responses evolved over time, their, their reactions to, to Beijing and China more generally? One of the reasons I've stayed in Beijing for so long, apart from apparently a serious case of masochism, is that I really enjoy working with students and now with a, a wide range of people in experiencing Beijing and exploring China. And it has also given me an opportunity to to hear different viewpoints and different observations, different reactions to being in China uh, from people who are visiting or people who are studying here. And, you know, it's, it is kind of interesting how some people come here and, of course, you know, like our good friend Tom Friedman and, and others, take a look at the high-speed rail and the, the high rises and the infrastructure and can't stop gushing about how China is kind of a, a new way of doing things. And wouldn't it be nice if everything in the U.S. was as nice, shiny, and new as as it is in China? And then there are other people who take a, a much darker view, and they they look at me as we're walking around the, the streets of Beijing on a on a walk, and they're like, they whisper to me, "Is like, are the cameras on us right now?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, look up there, they're right there." And he goes, "Can they? Can they?" Can they see my lips as I'm talking to you? I'm like, well, you know, we we can try this out. Uh, I get the uh, get the point. Uh, you mentioned to me earlier before the uh, uh, before the show that folks from the global north and global south tend to have a different response to what they see here. I think it's a really I- important differences between how people appreciate the experience of coming to China. It's still the case that a lot of folks who are coming from Western Europe or uh, North America, Australia, some of those countries that are perhaps uh, a bit more developed and certainly some of the countries which we consider Western, you know, th- there's still an idea when people come to China trying to either look for the China that was, you know, the old China, the authentic China, whatever that means, and often associating that authentic China with that which is oldest or or most fits with a kind of a preconceived notion of a crazy China or a China that exists perhaps in old movies. And a lot of folks who come from, especially students who are now coming to China to study at the universities, uh, a lot of them on government scholarships, and who frankly are coming from countries th- for whom China is a model of development. That these are that that a lot of folks are coming from the global south who come to a city like Beijing, and you know it's it's probably or perhaps at least the, the first city they've seen with an extensive metro network, the high speed rail. 
you know, a city that compared to a lot of other places around the world could even seem orderly. Sure. You get folks from coming from Western Europe or North America and, the, you know, they, they talk about how, my goodness, the streets in Beijing are crazy. Maybe not as crazy as I thought, but definitely crazier than back home. Sure. And then, you know, you have other folks who are coming uh, to Beijing and they're thinking, wow, this society seems so well run. And of course, a lot of folks, this is part of uh, something that's been happening for as long as people have come to China, which is that people project their own attitudes about where they've come from onto the canvas of China. Sure. And that can create an image of China that they take with them or an image of China uh, that they experience that isn't always the experience of those who live here, from here, or even the experience of China that perhaps those people in the society or the government who care about China's soft power uh, would wish that they would would have. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about um, tourist sites, uh, particularly in Beijing, and how sort of the buildings and history are handled. You mentioned um, that you know when folks go to see something that's supposedly from the Song Dynasty and it was actually kind of repainted two years ago and rebuilt 30 years ago. Um, what is motivating that type of presentation and, and how should people think and, and engage with those types of spaces? Well, I think it is interesting when we take a look at the, the, the history of history in Beijing and the idea of, you know, after, the, after 1949, so many of the sites that are today kind of treasured attractions that are you know, part of every traveler's itinerary, whether they're from China or from another country in Beijing, were at that time relics of a past that needed to be explained or forgotten. Mm. And that resulted in some cases in some pretty serious damage, particularly during the Cultural Revolution, uh, but also really a few decades of not so benign neglect for a lot of sites that left many sites in, in disrepair. And what's happening, of course, in the late 20th and now 21st century is a reevaluation of these relics as the era in which they were built itself comes under a reevaluation mm -hmm. as the party and as uh, historians in China move away from a really rigid kind of Marxist interpretation, at least publicly a Marxist interpretation of China's past, you know, one that emphasized class struggle and, you know, overturning the old feudal order. In many ways, the party kind of moves away from itself as a revolutionary party and more to a party that is uh, interested in preserving and even glorifying China's past. A lot of these sites have uh, been renovated, reimagined, rebuilt, mm. not always in accordance with their actual history, but often in accordance with what the people who are in charge of these sites wish the history had been. You, you want to give an example of that? Well, sure. I think we've seen whole neighborhoods of Beijing that have been not demolished to make way for malls and hotels, as we saw quite a bit in the late 20th century, but instead neighborhoods that were demolished and then rebuilt in a style that certainly is a head fake in the direction of a particular uh, historical period in Beijing's history, whether it's the late imperial or the republican in the early 20th century, but is also done in a way that it, it doesn't necessarily reflect the actual historic character of those neighborhoods. That is to say, if you look at photographs from the the period that's being represented. There's still a lot of people doing a lot of random stuff on the streets. Right. That's a good example. I mean, you know, there's the the idea like, you know, you have these 
these hutongs that have been kind of cleared of any kind of commercial life. Mm -hmm. And that was certainly true for some neighborhoods. I mean, these were official residences in many places, but also other neighborhoods where you had temples, where temple fairs spilling out into the streets. You had peddlers going up and down. You know, the, the cries of the hawkers as they went through the streets was part of the soundscape of Beijing. And, and particularly in the areas, you know, south of where Tiananmen Square is today, what used to be the old southern city or Chinese city, uh, the streets were bustling with a kind of life that isn't as obvious today in, a, in, a, in, the, in Beijing's quest to be a more carefully managed space. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting that you're seeing a handful of places which are angling towards that in a really interesting, odd way, like, like Tianmen nowadays. I mean, there is a mall, but it's like the only sort of human scale mall I've seen. I don't know if you've been to like the, where the Muji hotel is and stuff. They're not blowing it up entirely in the way that sort of like the brickening hutongs were just deciding we're not having commerce here. Full stop. You know, I'm having uh, Jonathan Chatwin on, I think, next week. And we're going to talk about like Shogong and uh, how they're trying to make this Olympic Park sort of have a bit more of a reflection of its history as opposed to the Olympic Park um, for 2008, which was just entirely flattening neighborhoods and, and building and then throwing new buildings down. Um, but but seeing folks be a little more respectful, I guess, of of, of history, but still, um, you, you know, very much taking, a, 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 you know, whatever a 2019 architectural mindset of a Chinese uh, urban planner is and throwing that down onto different neighborhoods is a really interesting uh, trend to watch. Yeah, I mean, I think from my perspective, from just as someone living here, if you're going to destroy a neighborhood and rebuild it, I, I guess I'd rather it be built it, it with some kind of head fake to the past as opposed to some new gleaming steel and glass monstrosity. Um, yeah, I think it reflects also probably a, a divergence or I should say a difference of opinion in the urban planners in Beijing. I think everyone has their different idea of what a modern Beijing looks like. Sure. I don't think anyone's really agreed on this. And I, you see the overlapping uh, interpretations of modernity here in the city. Some of these plans, some of these visions have a place for China's past. And, you know, the, one of the big buzzwords right now is cultural self-confidence, although it's not always clear entirely what that means. And uh, while other folks, you know, they're they're much more into the you know style that is reflective of, of you know cities around the world. You know, as I mentioned uh, at a talk at the Bookworm earlier this this year, I was saying, you know, some folks come to Beijing and they see the malls of the Chaoyang District and like, oh, this could be anywhere, and without realizing that there are probably a couple of uh, urban planners in the, in the the Beijing municipal government, like it's giving like each other high fives, up, yeah. like, yeah, yep, we this is what we're going for. This could be anywhere, and. Uh, well, while there are others who probably or clearly have a have a view of Beijing that, that could be um, inclusive of at least some interpretation of the past, if not necessarily convinced of the necessity of of wholesale preservation. Yeah, I mean, you know, on the on the one hand, like we're we're sitting in my apartment, which has a floor to ceiling windows and like a really nice little um, park that my little apartment complex shares, and that is super pleasant, and I'm like very happy I get to live here and not. A place that doesn't have you know heat in the winter and running water. I think there's there's there, there's some balance which it seems uh, I guess both of us agree isn't isn't quite being uh, is is being pushed a little too far on the um uh, you know out with the out with the old yeah I side. Mean, I mean that's a good point, and I I think it, it's also worth remembering 
and I try to communicate this to people I work with, either student groups or other groups, that the temptation to want to put a glass case over cities like Beijing and other historic cities and preserve it as it looked like in you know 1873 because that's going to be an awesome photo. It's going to be an awesome image on Instagram. Uh, doesn't necessarily uh, connect with what people may who live there, who who visit there from that particular country, their expectations for the city. You know, one of the things I've I've talked I talk a lot about is this idea that a lot of again a lot of folks from other parts of the world you know, they want to see the China that was. A lot of folks, but remembering that many, many if not most, in fact, take that back even an overwhelming majority of the people who come to the city as tourists are from other parts of China. And for them, they're more interested in the China that should have been, could be, or hopefully will be. And so these issues of what is the real China, what's the, what's the authentic city? There are competing ideas of what that authenticity is. Sure. And, and, and Hutong life is an interesting curio, not the future. Oh, I mean, in that, you know, we, this, we saw this a couple of years ago when Dolce & Gabbana got into trouble by doing a photo shoot in the Hutong and people freaked out about this and you know, they're trying to make China look bad. And I, I see this sometimes, too. And I take groups through the – I try to keep the groups very small. I feel like Hutong walks need to be like less than 10 people if at all possible. But one thing I try to caution – some of the neighbors we visit aren't necessarily tourist neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So I try to be careful about going there too often and especially caution people about – our our guests about – how they're interacting with the space, you know, that one of the things I, 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 not to tell people not to take pictures, of course, but to be aware of the pictures that they're taking and how that might be interpreted. And the idea that, as in the case of Dolce and Gabbana, there may be folks in the city who feel like this is a way of reinforcing, you know, stereotypes that people not from China have about, you know, Chinese poverty. Sure. And in fact, shouldn't, wouldn't it be better off if we were all taking pictures of, you know, the newest skyscraper or the newest mall or, or something like that. I kind of like the malls. I don't know. There's like. Yeah, we talk, we talk, my, my wife and I, uh, we talk a lot about our occasional visits to what we call mall Beijing, which is when we go to some of the, uh, this is also kind of reflective of our, of our age and place in life. But, you know, when our date night is going out to one of the malls and like, cause it's got a nice movie theater and the, there's got a, you know, unfortunately, and this is also, you know, thank you, urban planners. But a lot of the better restaurants, places to eat, are being kind of forced gradually fifth and into sixth floors, baby, into malls. <laughs> uh, so it's you know it's a little weird. Like let's let's go to some of the the better restaurants and let's do that in the food court. But you know there is an aspect of those malls on a hot, muggy August day. You know that can be quite nice. That said, you know there's a reason. Um, I've always lived in the, the Dongcheng district of Beijing. Um, even now with some of the sanitization, both good and bad of the streets, you know, sanitization, the sense the streets are a lot cleaner, not so good in the sense that a lot of the local street life has, of course, you know, been, uh, been removed, but I still feel like a connection with Beijing. And again, I'm fully aware of this is perhaps reflecting a bias that I came in with, but, you know, reflecting a, a connection with the city and its past that I don't get as much when I'm, you know, at Parkview Green or, or uh, one of these uh, one of these new mega malls. Sure. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Qing Dynasty. So how does the CCP want me to think about it? Well, you know, I, I, one of the things we've seen change over the last really 
30 years or so has been a, a new approach to how China's past is interpreted for the present. And it's been interesting to see, we were talking about this in the 60s and 70s, it'd be a lot about class struggle and, and the you know anti-imperialism, anti-feudalism, and a rejection in many ways, almost an iconoclastic rejection of China's past. And this is something that you know, it was seen in the Cultural Revolution, but obviously has its roots going back to the May 4th era and, and perhaps even before. But in the last 30 years, there's been a change in this. And it's, it's an, an ex- a change that's also taken on a new twist in the last two or three years. Mm-hmm. And that change was a move away from this kind of uh, rejection of China's past to a story that almost is I've, has almost religious overtones. This idea that, you know, now when we look at China's past, we see it in a museum, we're presenting this image of like, so for 5,000 years, you know, up until really kind of the mid-Qing era or however thousands of years it is this week anyway, uh, there was this glorious, incredible past, this glorious civilization. Xi Jinping is in Greece and he's talking about how great civilizations understand each other, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> this glorious past. And then that's part, that, that's kind of halfway through the Qing era. And then there was a fall from grace at the hands of, you know, evil foreign powers, you know, people who look an awful lot like me working with their traitorous collaborators from inside China that laid China low in the late Qing period and gave way to this hundred years of humiliation, which, of course, stretches beyond the end of the Qing and into the early 20th century, culminating with the Japanese occupation. And the way this is presented is this idea that this hundred years of humiliation, this is important to remember because China was glorious. It was brought down. And then the idea was people were trying to bring it back. People were trying to save China. People were trying to restore the glory and none were successful. You know, people with names like Sun Yat-sen, people with names like we were, uh, you know, Zhang Guofan or Li Hongzhang. Um, you know, all these people were trying to save China and none could. You know, until, of course, you know, one man and one party, <laughs> six foot tall from the Hunan Polytechnic Teachers College. Six foot tall? Yeah, it was a legit six foot. Really? Yeah, wow. that was, I mean, the one, I, not to digress, but yeah, that was one of like one of the things that Mao had going for him in early 20th century That's southern China. That's a big boy for 19. That's what I'm saying. He, he, had a, he had a presence when he walked in. I always thought, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, uh, you know, yellow face casting or inter-ethnic casting. But boy, we, we missed an opportunity when James Gandolfini, who played Tony Soprano, died because I can't <laughs> think of anyone who more physically embodied kind of that, what Mao probably was like in that era. But in any case, the idea was like Mao was the one person who could redeem China. The party was the one power that could redeem China. And that, of course, gave the party in the, in the present day, we're talking about now, a new legitimacy, divorced, if you will, from its revolutionary past, this idea that it was not about class struggle. It was about redeeming China from this period of 100 years of humiliation and setting China on the course to a future. Now, what that future would be, that's kind of what's kind of changed in the last few years. You know, in the up until the new era of Xi Jinping, that redemption was all about Mao and the Communist Party saving China mm-hmm. in 1949. But what we're seeing now is a new version of this, if you will, that, and again, I, I'm going to beat this religious metaphor to, to death, but, you know, Mao being like the John the Baptist figure, mm-hmm. you know, the guy who, uh, the guy who, the, pointing the way forward for the great rejuvenator. And so now, you know, you ask, like, what, it, what, what does the party want me to remember about the Qing Empire? And they want us to remember that it was 
in some ways a, a high point of Chinese civilization, particularly under you know, the Kangxi, Yongzheng, and Xianlong emperors. But you know, it was also a period where China was preyed upon by foreign powers that brought China down and that it required extraordinary measures by extraordinary leaders, the successors of whom are still firmly in place. Thank you very much. And in fact, even as we speak, preparing to build upon that redemption for China's ultimate return to glory. Sure. And so, you know, you go to the museums, you go to the National Museum, you see the Road to Rejuvenation exhibit, which of course the name of the exhibit and the exhibit predate uh, this new era, but tellingly was one of the first places that Xi Jinping took his, uh, took the, you know, took his fellow leaders on a little field trip, you know, after he took power. And if you walk through there, this, this is the story is told, you know, in the basement of the National Museum um, is the, the Hall of Ant- the Ant- Antiquities. It's all about China's glory. You go upstairs to the road to rejuvenation and immediately you're confronted with this like, you know, room after room of China's humiliation leading to this one room where it's all red. And it's, you know, it's like in the Wizard of Oz when it goes to Technicolor. There's the Chairman Mao era. And of course, the, the exhibit, at least as of a couple months ago, ends with the Hu Jintao era. Yeah. But, you know, last year we had the the museum was um, transformed to celebrate their 40th anniversary of their form and opening. And if that had a light, nice little missile in the, um, uh, in the foyer there. Yes. In case anyone wanted to miss the point and the uh, benevolent face of Xi Jinping smiling from every corner, relegating, you know, figures like Deng Xiaoping to, to a, their own small side exhibit in the celebrating this, this, this era, this, the era that dates back to, you know, 1978, uh, gives us some indication of how they may update the Road to Rejuvenation exhibit in the future. Every time I have to whip out my phone to look up something in Pleco, I get a little depressed, having just reminded myself of just how little Chinese I really know. But the outlier linguistics add-on has turned Pleco from a chore into a delight. For every character I look up, thanks to the outlier add-on, I get to learn an always useful and oftentimes hysterical etymology. For instance, the other day I stumbled upon the outlier entry for Mingzi the Ming and learned that its original meaning came directly from the components mouth and moon, meaning to call out one's name at night to identify oneself. The image of some guys dressed up in Hanfu 3,000 years ago streaming their names out to each other in pitch black is hilarious, and having this image in my head will make sure I will never forget which components make up the character. Go to outlier-linguistics.com to learn more and use the promo code ChinaEconTalk for 25% off. The exhibit I've enjoyed the most so far, they had like a 200-year Mark's anniversary one. And the coolest part where they just had these enormous paintings of Mark's and angles. And some of them were like in like classic Chinese museum, like realistic oil paint style. But there were two or three that were sort of like, like, like Shan Shui Hua. Um, where they're just very like abstract, but it was like still Mark's, you know, like writing a book or something. That was very, it was like, I'm glad, I'm glad they found someone to make that painting and like paid him a few, a few thousand quiet. Well, it is, it is interesting too. And I think the Mark's, the, the celebration of Mark's that was going on, uh, mostly last year, yeah. but it's kind of continued reminds us that just despite the fact that, that history is being told in this particular way that helps uh, enhance and accentuate the legitimacy of the party, Marxism, or at least, you know, theoretical Marxism um, still plays an important role in how the party understands itself and the uh, ideological and rhetorical contortions that the party 
party leaders and theoreticians um, go through in when you read their articles that are in some of the journals or in some of their uh, white papers and things like that to try to to blend this together because it's clear Marxism is still like the Marxist legacy is still very important. Yeah, even as the story itself has changed significantly away from how some of the orthodox I wouldn't say more orthodox Marxists but some of the orthodox Marxists of the past you know someone like Deng Xiaoping for example might have understood it. When you're doing these tours and you're overhearing Chinese tour guides giving their sort of spiels of all these different places, have you heard their take on these or just even Chinese tourists talking about this stuff? Like, have those conversations changed at all over time? You know, I, I've, I've gone on a lot of tours in China myself. I'm, again, leading, I've led student groups for years here. I have a lot of respect for the hard work that a lot of Chinese tour guides put into presenting their country for an international audience, often in their second language. Or in some cases, you walk around like the Forbidden City and you hear Chinese tour guides speaking in Spanish and Polish sure. and German. And it's, uh, it's, it's amazing the amount of work they put into this. Uh, I will say the the like student docents they have in the Forbidden City are wonderful. Uh, you know, like the, the, the just like the knowledge that like whatever like history grad student who hangs out two afternoons a week in the furniture room has and can like talk to you for 45 minutes about every piece I've, i found really impressive yeah and there's there's and that's one of the most important things anyone can do when they come to a city like beijing is to tap into the deep knowledge base that people here only people here people who grew up in the culture have and uh it's you know any knowledge i have that i share with people has only been made richer um, by conversations and interactions I've had too with people who are you know deeply expert in their particular fields. Sure. I think that it also is a real challenge for a lot of prof- uh, professionals who work in the travel industry in China to um, articulate a message about China's story, given that the ideological parameters for doing so have only become more narrow mm. over the last few years. You should, I mean, I've looked at some of the materials that tour guides have to, you know, I, I am, I am by, by virtue of my nationality and because I really don't want to, I could never be a licensed tour guide in China. So that's why I don't give tours. I do walks, but, uh, but at the same time, um, looking at those materials, I mean, the, 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 the things that they have to memorize and the way it is presented tends to be very lacking in context, not because I'm sure folks don't want to or don't have the ability to give that context, because context is a little tricky to do when the historical context is officially always changing. Sure. And so I, I, I hear, I, I mean, I, I know, I mean, I, I read a lot of the same materials and uh, I, the kind of pressures that a lot of people here are under is immense. And, uh, you know, what I try to do in my own small way is to work within that existing ecosystem to help provide uh, context and maybe to also do it in a way that, that, that helps to make rather complicated parts of Chinese history a little bit easier for people from who aren't Chinese to understand. Sure. And to also perhaps make more complex, a lot of the simplistic notions that a lot of people from other parts of the world come to China, bring with them to China. Uh, I know that's a paraphrase of an old expression but uh you know I, i'd see it as part of my uh my own personal mission and working with beijing by foot sure 
Um, you talked about how five, ten years ago, dissent got you in trouble. Now, what's getting in, you in trouble is not being enthusiastic enough, um, which is uh, a, a, a definitely a tricky space to to be in. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something we see a lot in like in academia. I mean, uh, in trying to find people uh, from China to speak at international conferences or to do interviews for the media. Yeah, the the, the sad reality is that the people who have things really interesting things to say. Are not saying them, guys. There's a there's a there's a reason I don't have a lot of mainland guests, and it's not for lack of trying. I assure you. Yeah, and uh, and the people who do want to speak up on microphone, uh, frank frankly, just usually are repeating the talking points that you know come right from uh, right from uh, you know the information the state council information office and uh, and their their various branches, and uh, you know that's. Um, that's a reflection of the, you know, of the new era. I mean, you know, it, it, there was a way of understanding this, like, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, during what God love us all seems to be the glory age of freedom and liberalism. That was the Hu Jintao era. And, uh, and that, you know, you, there was spaces for dissent within Chinese society. And the idea was, you know, you could speak up about certain issues as long as you avoided very sensitive topics or more importantly you spoke about those issues but didn't follow it up with and who's with me mm-hmm. and try to organize uh it does feel like today and this is from conversations with a lot of people that not dissenting is not enough it is how enthusiastically are you agreeing um with the ideological trends that are being um that are you know, current or being favored by the the party and its leaders. Sure. Let's talk a little bit now about the contrast you see in the way Beijing and Taipei portray their history. Right. Yeah. I don't know if I could do this job in Taipei. Like I, I, my job, I do. I, I was in Taipei and granted, I wrote an article last year about this. Like I was in Taipei for a week, fell in love with it and then wrote one of these effusive like, oh my God, this place is awesome articles that was exactly the kind of thing that we all make fun of people like Tom Friedman for doing. Sure. Um, but I, one of the things I did notice, I was, I was there doing research for an article that was eventually published comparing the, the Forbidden City and the, the National Palace Museum in Taipei. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I noticed going around the National Palace Museum was, uh, you know, just how much information was given and how much of the information was contextualized in a way that I think would make it a richer experience for those folks who maybe did not grow up within Chinese culture. And uh, that was obviously a very clear, I mean, of many differences between Beijing and, and Taipei. So it's just like the comfort with mixed messages coming out of Chinese history. History, of course, isn't all good and all bad. I mean, and, and one of the challenges is when you present history is when you present a subject or any subject and all you can talk about is the good and you don't have any bad in it. People have a hard time believing it was as good as you say it is. Mm-hmm. It's the same, same reverse. It's, it, you know, if you talk about how someplace is all bad people will probably think it's not quite as bad as you thought it was. And one of the keys when you're talking about history or teaching history or presenting history is, you know, there's good stuff and bad stuff that happens. And one of the things, all historical narratives are created. All historical narratives are in some places products of the the present reality of the places where these narratives are being deployed. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a clear difference when it's such a controlled media information environment or closed information environment like you have in Beijing versus a more open information environment like you have in Taipei. And it, it it makes appreciating the history, appreciating the story. You hear a lot uh, from Chinese um, 
the Chinese state about how soft power just doesn't translate here. China's story, people aren't hearing China's story. And part of that is just the way it is being told, the way it's being presented when people arrive in China is very different from the way it's being presented when you're in uh, in Taipei. The sort of most obvious difference between the, the museum and in, in, in Taipei and in Beijing and is that Beijing there's just like a ton of replicas everywhere I think the uh, the architecture is also really uh, really striking in the National Museum I mean it's super Soviet it like makes you feel really small and insignificant walking into that foyer or whatever where it's just like seven floors of space um, I feel like the, the the Taipei Museum feels much more intimate there's not kind of like this like imposition of like grandeur that like is supposed to like overawe you and make you feel like small and sad. Um, the other thing that really struck out to me, which I think is sort of fun, is in the National Museum in Beijing, they have this whole room of like tribute, um, but it's like modern tribute. It's like all the random gifts that ambassadors and foreign ministers and presidents have given to China, which of course makes for terrible art, right? This is like basically like these really like ugly, showy, shiny things, like terrible paintings or whatever. But the fact that that is something that is deserving of a wing of your national museum, when in fact these these sort of expensive trinkets have nothing to do with China, I think is a really is a really striking striking detail. Well, yeah, I think the the goals of the various museums are are different. You know, you have the the National Museum, which of course started as two different museums, you know, the the Museum of Chinese History and the Museum of the the Revolution, and that was combined into a single oh, really? mega museum uh, a few years ago. Yeah, part of that is, as we were talking about, is kind of to emphasize the glory of the past and the glory of the future, mm-hmm. and this notion that you know it's it's very much designed to remind people of China's place in the world. So you have, and this is also something you see in a lot of other similar countries as well. I mean, in, in the, the tombs of uh, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, there's a room of all the gifts they've been, they were given over the years yeah. as well. Uh, perhaps not the uh, model that the Chinese leadership is going for, but <laughs> comes from a similar place. Our people have heard about how there may be people in the world who don't like us, but that's not true because look, we've gotten Look this- at how much honor we've accrued Right. From, look, look at all these ivory products we have on display. From, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's that. I think the for I think the National Palace Museum in Taipei, which which I think has more in common with the Palace Museum in Beijing that we think of as the Forbidden City, sure. was designed to reinforce that the the government, the the Republic of China, the Guomindang's connection as as uh, custodians, the true custodians of China's past. And, you know, one of the, the things you kind of mentioned replicas, you know, go to the Forbidden City, the Palace Museum, uh, and a lot of the things there are replicas. Um, part of that is not a bad thing. Uh, you know, if you if you haven't if you've been to the Palace Museum, the Forbidden City, you know, 10, 15 years ago, a lot of the rooms were completely empty. And this, this made the experience a little dreary. You yeah. know, what was this room for? I just see a giant room. Maybe there's a throne in the corner, but there's not really any of that material culture that can help. Folks appreciate, especially those folks who weren't raised on all the TV shows. Yeah. Problem with that, of course, is that most of that stuff is, you know, in Taiwan um, or in museums around the world. And, you know, in in the 1930s, a lot of the materials that 
the, the best of the Palace Museum collection, the best of many of the collections that were in Beijing at the time, were packed up by the, by the nationalist government, and they were sent around. They kind of followed the government around during World War II, and then when they fled to Taiwan, it went with them. So, you know, the, the line I always use is, you know, in the divorce – you know, Beijing kept the house, which is the forbidden city, but Taiwan got all the furniture. <laughs> and so the result is you have this palace that still has a million pieces in their collection, but a lot of it, a lot of the material culture that you see on display is replicas. And, and in in Taiwan, you have a this National Palace Museum where, you know, opinions vary about the architecture of the museum. Yeah. I'm not a fan. Other people are more forgiving, but it's got, a, you know, some of just exquisite uh, pieces in their collection. So, yeah, it's, it, it is a really striking contrast between the two. And then factor in the National Museum, which is the one in Beijing, the one in Tiananmen Square, you know, one of the things when they reopened was they kind of got to cherry pick the best of all the collections around China. Sure. And so that included, well, except for the pieces in Taiwan, of course. And then uh, in a lot of that, that, that only added to some of the misery in the Forbidden City. Yeah. And some of their better pieces also went on display across the street. You mind talking a little bit about how the Forbidden City has changed over time and in particular what uh, Wang Shudong has done with the place? Well, Wang Shudong took over, uh, it was uh, earlier this year, replacing Shan Jixiang, who had been uh, a very energetic head of the Forbidden City um, and had steered it into the this last decade, making all kinds of changes from limiting the number of people who could go into the Forbidden City each day to moving to online reservations to also... Uh, beginning the process by which the museum would celebrate two important upcoming anniversaries. So 2020 is being considered the 600th anniversary of the opening or the, uh, the building of the Forbidden City. Why not? Why not? <laughs> and uh, in uh, 2025 uh, is the 100th anniversary of the Palace Museum or the Forbidden City opening officially, mm-hmm. at least that's how it's being uh, understood as the 100th anniversary of the Palace Museum. So the idea under first under Shan Jixiang, uh, Shan Jixiang and uh, under uh, Wang Shudong is to uh, have about 95% of the Forbidden City open to the public and renovated uh, at least by 2025. And there's been a lot of um, a lot of work being done. A lot of new spaces have been reopened. A lot of new spaces have been uh, have been renovated or have also been renovated in ways that uh, keep with kind of the historic character, you know, again, with using reproductions to recreate the material culture. Sure. At the same time, I think there's uh, still some debate among stakeholders in the Forbidden City as to what it should be. And I, I think to compare it to the debate to two museums, uh, two perhaps better known museums, and there's a question of whether it should be Versailles or the Louvre. Mm-hmm. Should it be a an example of palace life, you know, a historical uh, replica of, of what it was like, you know, back in the days of the emperor as an educational tool for history, or should it be a space that's used to display the, the, the still very impressive collection of art and artifacts that the museum currently has? So I don't know if it's been exactly decided yet. As I said, Wang Shudong just took over this year. He did a lot of great work out in Dunhuang, where he was the director of the, I think it was a Dunhuang Institute sure. up until recently. Uh, so, you know, hopefully he'll continue a lot of the work that's been going on. Do you have a preference as to what path it should go down? I mean, I guess the answer is a bit of both, right? A bit but- of both. I, I guess, I mean, this is just my personal interest. I, I'd like to see it, you know, more like you can walk around the rooms and see this is what it looked like in the 18th century more than just another, you know, exhibit space. Mm-hmm. But I, I think there's probably room for both 
for both things to be done. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, the, the legend of it having 9,999 and a half rooms, surely they can find spaces for both uses in, sure. among that, uh, among those rooms. Um, I, I had a recent discovery. I went like Northeast the other day in the, um, in Gugong and they have this, like, uh, it's sort of like a, it's sort of like a Shakespeare globe type theater. It's like three quarters of the way around. It's three different stories. It's basically they used to put on, um, put on plays and it's really fun the way they did it up. And you can really imagine yourself being there, like sitting in the emperor's box. And yeah, there's some, there's, uh, the theaters there are really interesting as a corresponding one in the summer palace as well. Oh yeah. Uh, and you know, these, uh, these stages, uh, had like the most, I mean, they're almost like IMAX for the 18th century Seriously. because they were huge, but also they had all these different levels where you could have different actions going on. There were trap doors and, uh, there were trap doors in the ceiling and the floor. So that you have people swooping in or disappearing suddenly. I mean, <laughs> the latest possible special effects, uh, for, for an imperial audience. And it, it is kind of cool the way that they are renovating those spaces so that people can appreciate that in our, in our own era. Sure. Yeah. Waiting for the, um, uh, I don't know if he's going to start selling tickets to um, uh, to productions, but that would be a really cool. My, my understanding is they have done They've some done productions that? there. Oh, that'd be um, that's, that's and I awesome. would be I would be shocked if they haven't done it on a private basis as well, because you know, pimping out the Forbidden City is is a, a long and storied tradition in <laughs> in Beijing. So we're starting a new uh, tradition here on China Econ Talk, um, where we're ending on something positive. So whether that be a recommendation, a thought, um, a nice meal you had. Uh, What's uh what's 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 on your mind this week, Jeremiah? Well, if you're visiting Beijing, this isn't necessarily a new space, but it's a space that I think often gets overlooked, and uh, I would strongly encourage seeking it out if you're ever visiting the city. It's the Shijia Hutong Museum, okay. which opened. Um, you know, it's it's now well over ten years old, but uh, was was created with, uh, with support from the Prince's Trust. Uh, it also benefited from collaboration with curators from around the world. And it's a wonderful little museum in the Dengshirko part of, of the city. If you're interested in the, the history of these, of Hutong, you know, the alleyways of Beijing, uh, there's some really um, cool exhibits there. One of them I, I love particularly is a, a sound booth where you can go inside. And admittedly, it's the interface is only in Chinese, but you can dial up uh, some of the sounds of the city going back to the 70s and 80s. In particular, the songs of the peddlers, you know, these are the, the guys and men and women who would walk down the street selling uh, baozi or selling watermelon or, or, you know, helping to sharpen knives. And they all had their indistinct songs and cries that people would listen for from inside their courtyard home. So you can dial those up. They also have some... Uh, recreated rooms of uh, material culture from the 60s and 70s another room from the 80s and 90s uh that are they're pretty fascinating as well it's not a big space uh it doesn't take long to visit it but uh if you're looking for uh, a museum that it, that goes light on the propaganda and heavy on the the local beijing culture um uh, recommend uh visiting the shirja hutong museum that's the uh, the name of the hutong is uh, shirja hutong s h i j i a and it's in the uh, Dongshirko neighborhood cool. of Beijing. I got um uh, I got two um museums for you if we're gonna do if we're gonna do museum theme. So the first is the Eunuch Museum, which I would be very disappointed had you if you've never been to Jeremiah. Oh no! I just I just reviewed two two Eunuch books. Okay. Um, and uh, I have not been to the uh, 
so apparently there was this like there's like some hotshot eunuch and it was his grave um and then that sort of became the place where all the eunuchs got buried where's it located it's way way out west is it the early Zhuang? i don't i don't know it was like there, a 45 there was, minute cab ride yeah um, there was like there was a there was a what was once a, a village back then but there's a place called early Zhuang where a lot of the eunuchs from the late Qing were buried I, I would okay. I I'm I'm sure that's yes I remember reading panels about that okay. um, but uh yeah it's in this like middle of nowhere neighborhood with no it's you'll be the only person there um and it's very creepy but it is fun and they have these like very graphic uh, depictions and and also you kind of get the uh speaking of like you know history telling a narrative sense there's there's not there's not a whole lot of like pro eunuch uh, material in the um in the eunuch museum basically it's like terrible eunuch after terrible eunuch after terrible eunuch um though you know sima chen my um uh my jung uh, yeah jung ha there you know some guys who really um uh, really uh delivered the goods some get some people who actually made the cut after getting the cut they uh <laughs> um oh i promised to oh so the um uh, the other one i was in hangzhou the other week and um they have a tea museum which is in the middle of nowhere like a in the west there's very little around it but the exhibitions were like above average for a chinese museum but was really great was the grounds it's super well situated there are all these little tea houses um you don't have to necessarily drink their overpriced tea but you can kind of sit there and enjoy yourself um and just walking around there's um tea farms actually all around you as well so really well um really well sited space so definitely some museums with redeeming qualities that deal with uh, uh, Chinese history here and uh, here in the mainland. Yeah, I, I, one, I guess the suggestion would be if you if you're interested in museums, you know, some of the smaller museums that focus on very specific topics often I find more fascinating than some of the larger uh, museums that tend to get more attention from the state, but also that isn't always a good thing. Yeah, uh, it's particularly true of the the, the various provincial museums that you'll see in different capitals around. Uh, around the uh, around the country you know I, when i when i go with students and the tour guides are like let's go visit such and such provincial history museum i i, I tend to be uh, a little skeptical along the lines of yes that sounds fun like having unprotected rough sex with a porcupine oh. uh, so maybe we'll skip that and instead try to find the tea museum yeah, I mean, there's there's also like contemporary art museums. There are some super well funded ones, and the buildings are really beautiful. But that's sort of on another plane than the kind of stuff we've been talking about over the past episode. I'm not sure you can. Yeah, I quite think a really it. cool future episode. I'd be really interested to hear to listen to this, and and maybe it's already been done on one of the other sub China podcasts. But talking about the glut of museums, yeah, in in China, the amount of space devoted to museums, and yet still the relative shortage of international museums that are would be familiar to a global audience sure jeremiah jenny thanks so much for coming on china econ talk thank you for having me i really enjoyed it and uh good luck with the podcast China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from Sup China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shine.
路线，快点都给我让开！我从来不戴眼看他们设下的障碍，一换来换去怎么办？你选择头疼，这里好星星，这才是油门。女王的心意，耀眼的星星，时尚的精英，搭配什么看我的心情？你可以亲吻我。